In this episode, I talked to the most efficient man in the world, Ari Mizell. Ari and I talk about how he went on this journey of learning about and mastering productivity when he realized that it, at the end, was not really about being more efficient and he's completely turned his life around to being more effective. What does it actually take? The mindset, the mechanics, the strategies, the tactics, the actual human understanding around it, and we even get into the tools. What tools should every organization have? How can you work so beautifully with your team and with your clients without causing any stress that allows you to do your best work without having to get stuck in the drudgery of email or Slack or Trello or the other things that bog us down? The goal of the end is to be effective and uh, who better to learn from than the most efficient man in the world? This episode with Ari starts right now. One thing is for certain, just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this, where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to, how to grow your business, how to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Srivatsa, and welcome to Business School. So Ari, I've been um, hanging out with you, following your stuff, uh, learning about your stuff. I'd say when I recently read the, your new book and you said the subtitle was, you know, uh, very cool, which I'd love for you to talk about how that came about. And I, I would agree that you you are the the most productive man in the world, whether or not it's from a productivity perspective. I think that it goes to the thinking around it. Right. And I think I, I love that about you. And so. Just, just following you, I can see your passion for it. And I'd love to kind of figure that out. Like one, how did that passion for saying, well, I need to figure this out. I need to figure out how to be more efficient, how to be more effective. Like where did that come from? So, yeah, so the, the book is on productivity, the collective wisdom of the world's most efficient man. And uh, <laughs> so to be fair, uh, that was a, that was what, there was an article on greatest.com like eight years ago, and that's what they called me. Um, and so that's where I got that from. I didn't just come up with that on my own because it is somewhat pretentious. But at the same time, yes, it is kind of fitting. And I think it makes for a really good book title. <laughs> uh, even though efficiency is not necessarily the thing that we should be pursuing, nor is productivity. Uh, I talk a lot about that in the book, about how effectiveness is the, the right goal. But efficiency, you know, rings the right bells for people. So, yeah, that's that's that was the, that's the title. And I, and I do love it, I have to say. So the the short story right, is that I, I was working in construction development and I, I got sick with Crohn's disease and went from working 18 hours a day to working an hour a day. That's the story that I always tell. And I've said that many, many times. And it's true. Uh, but that wasn't enough right, to end up doing or having me develop all these systems. Now, the, the real thing about it is the restrictions. And anybody who's listening who feels like they're overwhelmed and they don't have enough time to do the things they want to do, I would very strongly argue that you probably have too much time. Uh, and, you know, Sharon, we were just talking about, right, spending unproductive time thinking about productivity, right? Parkinson's law tells us that work expands to fill the time allowed to complete it. Entrepreneurs have a lot more freedom than they think. And that's a lot of times why they became entrepreneurs or where they are entrepreneurs. And 
abundance is actually a really challenging thing. There's there's only a few people that do abundance really well. You know, like Peter Diamandis, for example, he he does abundance really well. But abundance for the human brain is actually really challenging. It's why we, you know, it's so hard to make decisions when you have thousands of options. We need restrictions in our life, and we need to create those restrictions in many cases to actually breed innovation. And the example that I always love to give is like MacGyver. Right? Were you a fan of MacGyver? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, anything with duct tape works, man. <laughs> There you go. I have a role right here, actually, in my EMT bag. Uh, nobody ever said to MacGyver, like, hey, I need you to blow up that building, right? So here's a shopping cart. Go to the Home Depot across the street, get whatever you need, and go blow up the building, right? It was always like, here's a life vest and three paper clips. Now go blow up the building, right? So, like, we need restriction in order to create those innovations. So in my case, the restriction just happened to work out that it was time, right? And if you have an hour to do something in the day instead of 18, like I was used to, the question at that point really isn't what would you do? It's what wouldn't you do? And if the things that you wouldn't do still have to get done, then somebody or something has to do them. You got to figure that out. And so it's a little anticlimactic in some ways, but I was just put into an extreme situation with no other choice but to figure something out. And fortunately, that created this yeah. whole new movement and productivity system that really works. Well, it, it, it's uh, I've heard that story multiple times. And uh, it didn't actually resonate for me until... I was, I was sick in a hospital bed running a business uh, that was growing very fast. And I was like, I, I can't do much from this hospital bed while pretending like I am working. And, and had to kind of build my life around, as you said, the restrictions. But so the question for you is this. Why do we come up with the systems and the, the, the people and the, the support system around us when... Why do we wait to be dealt a shitty hand to then go do that, right? And 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 that's what I, I because a lot of times that's what I, when people are like, Sean, how how did you do that? I want your VA. And I'm like, you don't want my VA. My VA was built for me, right? And so so my question is, how how can we get somebody to increase their level of urgency so that they don't have to wait for life to deal them a crappy hand that that forces them to go do something that makes their life better? Well, here's the thing, right? Firefighting is so much sexier than fireproofing, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, but fireproofing is what we really need, and that's what we really need to be doing, and that's what we need to be thinking about. And yes, again, like it's so much cooler to run into a burning building and pull somebody out alive, but then you die, right? Maybe, or you have a heart attack. It, it's so less cool to be like, we're going to put you know extra fire extinguishers here, and we're going to put this fire retardant material that we may never actually need in this place. But that's ultimately what a business needs to stand. That's what your body needs to stand. But again, not sexy. So the ego is like, I want the sexy thing. I want to do that thing that's really cool and exciting and fun and makes me feel needed and valuable. Uh, and we end up putting ourselves into a hole that goes completely counter to the entire idea of entrepreneurial pursuits, which is freedom, right? And Tony Robbins likes to say, which I, I, I always like the saying, but he says that uh, people don't change until the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of changing. And unfortunately, a lot of people have to get to that point. Now, we want to try to avoid that if we can. We don't want people to have to have a car accident or a death in the family or a heart attack. Uh, but it's hard. And one of the big shifts that I've had recently with a lot of clients that I think has been really helpful is I've always, I think I've always been sort of known for thinking about things in the opposite way that many other people do. And there have been two sort of concepts that have come up recently that have been really, they're intertwined and, and I think they're really valuable sort of mindset shifts. So people always talk about what they want, right? They like to talk about their goals. And I am not a big goal setter, which you can talk about if you want, but uh, they always want to talk about what they want, like what you're trying to get to, you know, the, 
trying to expand the company, all these kind of make billions of dollars, whatever it might be, but the things that they want. And the thing is, is if you ask anybody what they want, most people will have an answer. And most of the time, it'll be complete bullshit. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know. If I'm no, go for it. Here. That's the way. <laughs> and, and that's it. It's like, oh, yeah, I want to have, you know, the, the, I want, I want this vision and like, all these people and like helping everybody. And maybe they do, but it's an answer that they've heard before. It's not necessarily theirs. And what I recently, most more recently, have been pressing people on is like, tell me what you don't want. Right. And try to tell me what you do not want to have in your life. What would you say no to right now? And it makes people pause. And when they start to think about it and they start to answer those questions, at least with my clients and the people that I tend to work with, a lot of people start to say things along the lines of like, I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't want to have a schedule that's not mine. I don't want to have to answer these calls. I don't want to have to have these meetings. Right. And what that ultimately leads to is this really interesting sort of freedom paradox, the liberty paradox, which I've written about in the book, but there's freedom from and freedom to. And most entrepreneurs are often seeking freedom from, right? Freedom from debt, freedom from the nine to five, freedom from the bad partnership, bad marriage, even whatever it might be, it's freedom from, it's like an escape from something that's quashing your liberties. But what we ultimately want, what I ultimately want for people is to have the freedom to do things. And in my case, a lot of times that means the freedom to leave the business if they so choose, not to make them do it, but if they so choose to. And so what I find I'm at the conversation that's happening now, which has really helped accelerate that understanding of why you have to do these things now, is that I look at these clients of mine, and I've, I've worked with thousands of entrepreneurs at this point, and corporate people too, I mean, everything in between. But I say to them, like, I, I've said this several times in the last few days, you have freedom right now. Everything you're talking about, you have the freedom that you've been trying to get. So now your job is to protect it, mm. right? So it's not about like, oh, we need to have a life-changing event so that you change course and start to like live the best life. It's like, no, you actually have the freedom. So opening another business, acquiring that company, hiring another VA, it's not gonna give you more of the freedom that you already have. Your need to focus on building up the defenses just like if we were going to go to war, I was like, it's, it's way harder to wear down your offenses than it is to quietly in peacetime, build up your defenses and build better walls on your fort and have better weapons and better food stores. And whatever that ends up being in your life, it's fireproofing versus firefighting, but it's just a different way of thinking about it. Like you have the thing you want. Now you got to hold on to it rather than they're, they're not, you're not pursuing anything anymore, right? Now it's time to turn to the, to the defense. So, so how does somebody, uh, when, when you're talking to a successful, but overwhelmed entrepreneur, um, and the very fact that they had, they had to even spend the hour call hanging out with you and like, you know, working through it, you probably are spending the first 15 minutes just calming them down and be like, Hey, let me clear your head. So you can actually tell me what's going on. <laughs> uh, how, how does that person in that mindset who's listening right now on the drive, saying, I'm busy, I feel like the business revolves around me in a lot of ways, which is okay. What is that first step? And you, you talked about what you don't do, but like, how do you unpack that to give them some time and space? Well, so first of all, I should point out that my coaching is done exclusively over Voxer. So I don't have hour-long calls yeah. or 15-minute setups with people. But I do get lots of event sessions from them as well, which actually Voxer has facilitated very effectively. So uh, the first thing is kind of, kind of take stock of what's actually happening. And that sounds so simple, but you know, you can't read the label from inside the jar, right? So all these people are kind of going through the motions, doing their things every day, and they don't necessarily know why 
or even how they're doing it. They just kind of do it. There's all this sort of like automatic stuff that happens. And that's very helpful in certain situations and really gets us stuck in many others. And I just, I, I want to illustrate something to give an example to sort of illustrate that really quick. And then I'll, I'll come back to the sort of more tactical aspect there. So uh, for the past several months, so we moved from Brooklyn to Princeton, New Jersey, uh, I guess three months ago now. And school was like mostly remote, sort of remote, changing all the time. But we didn't want to pull the kids out of school also and make that change. I have four young children. So I have been commuting our kids to school every morning to Brooklyn for an hour and 20 minutes and then, you know, working here in Brooklyn and taking them home at the end of the day. Also, you know, five days a week. And that's crazy. I know. I get it. But it's also temporary. Uh, and I do it every day and I have the whole routine, you know, I've got like, we, I get their bags ready the night before, actually now they do, fortunately, they get their bags ready the night before, I get their, their, like their shoes and their, everything are at each person's seat. And I've got like, I give them breakfast in the morning, we're all figured out. And, uh, last week my wife needed to come in and my wife doesn't come. She's, she stays in the house and she needed to come into the city with us because she had a, an appointment to, to go to. And she didn't do anything. We got, we left at the same, uh, we left at the same time and I did my routine. I, I thought. And we got to school and I had forgotten shoes for one of my kids and I had forgotten lunch for one of the other kids. And, uh, it was all on me. And so I ended up having to send one kid to school with my shoes and then go get shoes and come back. To and the routine fucked me basically, Yeah. you know, because my wife came with us, which really shouldn't have been a material change necessarily, but it changed it enough that I was like, I didn't check everything that I would normally check that would make it easy. And it just got messed up. Unfortunately, I was able to, you know, fix it. But routine is really great and really bad if we get sort of trapped in that situation. So I have this process called the ultimate KPI. And there's a whole bunch of sort of things I could go, I could explain about it. But essentially the exercise is you, you sit down and you write down 20 things that you do on a regular basis. And it's hard because people, it, it's like, oh yeah, I probably do a thousand things. Like, okay, well tell me 20 of them. And they get to like 12 and it's like, I know I do more than this. You know, it's like, they probably do, but like, they gotta be, they, it's, it's just not that easy to see it. So they write down the 20 things that they do on a regular basis. And then the next column is basically to write down 16 that they will no longer be doing at the end of the year. And then there's a whole bunch of other things, but basically we go through, oh, wait, oh, right. How are you going to, how are you going to get there? And it works. Uh, and it's been working and I've seen people, uh, you know, offloading half the things that they never thought that they could offload before because they've actually identified them. So that uh, optimization is really about tracking identification, like awareness of what is actually happening. Because I promise you this, next time you ask somebody how they're doing and they tell you they're very busy, ask them what they're busy with. And I promise you four out of five times, the person will go like this. I'm, I'm just busy. I'm really, I'm just so busy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just lots of stuff, lots of, you know, irons in the fire and like, you know, all sorts of other buzzwords. It's like, you, you don't know what you're busy with. Right. Right. Um, is there, is there, um, I know this seems mechanical, but a lot of times, even with, you know, kind of my clients, CEOs that I work with, mo most importantly, most of our stuff is with companies that we invest in. That's our, that's our main, uh, main goal. When we run our fund, we're investing in founders and, my biggest conversation with founders is, hey, like, you originally pitched this idea to me on this company that you're going to build, and you're spending 90% of the time not doing what you pitched to me, which is fa which is fascinating. And, and I understand that's the running a business thing because we've been there. 
uh, I would love for your guidance on this mechanical aspect of, like you said, stop to write, like stop to think, stop to write, like go through this process of writing the 20 things or the 16 things. Or, and I think there is this weird um, feeling in people that, well, I am to that point in my life where I don't need to stop to write or think. Or I can do it all in my head. And, and how do you kind of educate somebody to say, hey, like slow down, do this exercise with me. It'll help you. How do you kind of give them that separation that them doing that is good for them? Yeah, so it, it depends on the person a little bit, right? And how sort of how you read that they're going to respond to certain things. But people can get very defensive in that kind of a situation. It's like, well, my, you know, what this means there's something wrong with the way that I've been doing things. And because a lot of people tie their identity to the way that they work and what they do for work, like that becomes a real problem. And having a real sort of growth mindset is really understanding how feedback is a gift, right? And uh, there's going to be some of those people you just you can't change. You can't change them on that, nor should you necessarily try because they're not there yet, right? You can only sort of show them the door. You can't kick them in the butt and push them through it. Uh, but it, I like to talk about like shining a light, right? Like a lot of times it really is just sort of that idea of like shining that light. So you take somebody through that exercise of the, the 20 things. Uh, it's usually really shocking to them because part of the, the exercise is identifying the mindset that goes along with that kind of work. And there's four mindsets in my methodology. And you, you end up seeing that they're, they put themselves in a position where like the majority of the work that they're doing is work that requires them to be on site all the time. Right. And they don't realize that they didn't necessarily know that, that they've sort of uh, like handcuffed themselves essentially to their business. So uh, that, that's a really big one is honestly like just bringing that awareness to it. But there, it's funny, at, at this point in my career, like I'm confident enough in the work that I do. Like I, when I was younger, there was so much imposter syndrome going on. I, I was exposed so quickly to some really, really big companies. And I, fortunately, it worked out. But you know, the first time I was dealing with a billion-dollar company, like I'd never worked with a billion-dollar company before. But that was, I couldn't tell them that. You know, like it had to just sort of, it had to make sense. Nowadays, like, so I just had this interaction last weekend, last week with a client. Two weeks ago, actually, which I thought was it's worth sharing. I think it's really interesting. A lot of times when I do my coaching work with with CEOs and, and founders, I will also often work with their ops person, their COO, their directors, whatever, because I speak both languages. And uh, this particular client had not really engaged with me a lot and had sort of passed me off to his ops people. And he told them in a Voxter message, like, hey, I want you to check in with our, give them this information. And uh, three of them, there were three of them, and one of them just didn't answer at all. One of them sent me something that was kind of not really helpful and didn't really didn't engage. And then the other one, we went back and forth a couple of times, and then she kind of ghosted too. So like a week after that, which was about two weeks ago, he sends me a message. He's like, you know, Ari, I was thinking like maybe we should pause the, the coaching because I'm really not taking advantage of it. And um, the ops people are, you know, they said they don't really see the value necessarily in, in working with you. And so I was, I, I didn't get offended at all. I actually thought it was really funny. And I responded and I said, yeah, that's fine. You can pause if you want. I was like, but there's a very serious leadership issue that you are struggling with that you are going to have to address whether you like it or not at some point. And I'm happy to address it with you, but one way or another, you're going to have to address it. And he didn't respond. He, I saw that he heard the message. He didn't respond. And then like two days ago, all three of the ops people checked in with me and gave me this really like valuable information. And he basically apologized. He was like, you were right. He called me out on it. I was backing down. I was being weak. And I, I, I 
told the team, like, this is something that has to get done and we have to do this. And I said, you know, furthermore, I said, for somebody to tell you that they don't see the value in working with me, I said, I'm confident enough at this point to tell you that the problem is with them, not with me. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, yeah, he's like, they don't. And he told, and he sent a group message to all of them. He was like, you have the opportunity to work with a world-class yeah. coach and consultant that I'm paying for. It's like, you need to derive value from that. Uh, and so the point of me sharing that is that like, it's very easy to get sort of caught up in your own head. Yeah. And then Occam's razor kind of comes in, right? Simple solution. Well, it must be the person I hire. That must be the problem. Yeah. It's, it's, dude, it's, it's, wild. it's wild. And, and how do, um, the, 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 there are two questions I want to ask, uh, based on that. First one is the, the process of just Hey, I need to make time to make time or some version of that, right? Like I need to kind of clear some space so that way I can go clear some space or it's just easier for me to, can you just get me better and keep going down this path? Can you just give me a little bit of space? So that the, the, the two questions I have, maybe you, they're intertwined in some way and, and you can answer them any, any way you want is how do I make time to make time? And then when I do have that time, if it requires an investment, maybe in a system or a process or people is how do I justify that in my head? And, uh, I, I bet you get, you get pitched, you know, you get posed that often. How do you kind of reconcile those two things? So the, uh, the time to make time is an interesting one. Uh, it's, it's a, it's an excuse that we tell ourselves, right? Like I don't have the time to make the time right now. Like I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, kind of thing. Um, which I kind of feel like I found myself saying recently, just because, you know, I get up at, I'm up at like five to get the kids in the car and everything, but I also am a volunteer EMT. So I've had a couple overnight shifts in the last couple of weeks where like I finish at five 30 and come home and then drive the kids to school. Uh, so there's a limit to that. Right. And there's a limit to the, like, Oh, you know, I'll make time, but more importantly, they don't actually have to make the time to make the time. That's, that's, it, it's all, it's a mindset thing. And they just have to recognize a little bit of what they're doing. Right. Because, uh, several of my clients check in with me every night. Like it's just, it's a routine we've got into and they have to tell sort of tell me what they did that day. And most of them have to like check their calendar at 10 o'clock at night because they don't remember because so much has happened, right? Since, you know, they woke up at eight in the morning or seven in the morning, whatever it might be. But when they actually do that, they're like, huh, I actually got a lot done, you know, and there was actually progress on that. And a lot of them don't use project management systems. They don't communicate very effectively or using good systems. So they're actually being more effective than they realize in many cases, especially, you know, you have people who are making millions of dollars. Uh, so they're doing something, right? Like that's not accidental, usually. Uh, <laughs> Right. So, but those same people will be like, oh, I just had such a shitty day. Like I just didn't get anything done and I was annoyed. It's like, well, you did something, right? Let's talk about it. And so sometimes they don't have to make the time. They just have to shift the way they look at what they're doing. Um, and so, sorry, the second part, I didn't quite understand the second part of that question about so the second part, the, the second part on, on the, the investment in, Hey, um, am I, do I need to go get an employee, a VA, a team? How do I, how do I carve out and make that investment because I can't justify the ROI in my head or how do, how do they do that? Justifying the ROI. That's a good one. So that comes up about, so there, here's, okay. First of all, people are not the solution and technology is not the solution. So you heard it here, right? Like that's not the right thing to do. Uh, one of the reasons that everybody, everybody has had a bad experience outsourcing is because they try to do that as a knee jerk first reaction. 
And when you try to take something that is an inefficient problem that you don't want to deal with, that you don't want to explain properly to somebody who has less information, less context, and at the same time, you're expecting them to do a better job than you did with it, you are setting everybody up for failure. And then you're like, oh, I tried the outsourcing thing, not for me. If you give automatable work to a human being, you are in essence dehumanizing them. So why would we do that? They won't engage with it. They'll get pissed off. It, it'll exhaust them. So we need to look at automation first. So as a company is growing, I would say that there are some hard limits in some cases where you really shouldn't even be thinking about hiring. You need to be looking at systems and processes that replace people and replace what you do well. And then at some point, you start to shift that and you grow a team that has your vision and leadership skills, or and, and you can uh, pass on your leadership skills and truly scale that way. But people are the end of the road. We have to automate before we get to that, and we have to optimize before we get to that. So at the time when we do actually invest in people and processes, it really will make sense. Now, the thing that people have to really understand is I am a very high-tech person. I love technology, and I use a lot of it. Technology will amplify habits. So if you have good habits, technology will make them better. And if you have bad habits, as most people do, technology will make it a whole lot worse, a whole lot faster. So all of this starts with mindset and shifting the way that we do things and the way that we approach our work and the way that we create transparency and communicate and document processes. None of that has to do with technology or people. Yeah. The reason I'm circling the circling around this, this mindset conversation is if the person listening right now is like, Hey, I get a chance to listen to Ari, who has talked to, it was probably talked to, you know, thousands of people worked inside, like various ways systems have been built, has built his own multiple times. If you could kind of say, Hey, this one or two, I I hate to call it the the one silver bullet, but if this one or two kind of mindset based ideas, um, will help you like shift out of yourself to see your world. Like what would that, what would that piece of advice, I know it's cold advice, but if you had to say that overwhelmed, busy person, if I had to kind of give them a couple of like awareness generating things, what would, what would you tell them? So I would say, first of all, you want to look at the word every, right? So when we use the word every in our day, like every time somebody signs up for my newsletter, right? Every time I hire somebody, every time uh, I fire somebody, the word every should be a trigger that what you're dealing with is a repeatable event, right? A repeatable process of some sort. And if that's the case, then there's guaranteed to be an element of that or even the entirety of that process that could be automated or turned into a documentable, you know, standard operating process. So start to use that word, start to like identify the word every. That should trigger you to think differently about what you're doing. Uh, Because we're not, here to do repetitive processes, right? You're not a robot in a factory. Uh, And while that might make you feel important and valuable and needed in a business, it's not what the business needs. It's not what your team needs. So uh, that one. So first of all, start watching out for the word every. And then the next thing is that those sort of triggers and actions, right? So uh, this is a dashboard. So actually, this is really, I think, is a good example. So people are always looking at dashboards. And I get that question a lot. Like, what's the best dashboard system for this? And I always say, like, what do you want a dashboard for? You know, what, what, do, you, what do you need the dashboard for? Um, well, you know, I, I want to track, you know, the number of calls we're getting or the number of, you know, how the revenue is doing or whatever it might be, what our costs looks like. And, uh, sorry, and I say, why? You know, it's like, well, what are you going to do with that information? So, you, again, you think about triggers and actions. 
So you say to somebody like, well, what are you going to do if revenue is up, you know, 10% this month? Um, I don't know, you know, like, we'll, uh, we'll take everybody out for big dinner or something. Okay, fine. Right. What are you going to do if the revenue goes down 10%? Wow. Well, then we have to have a meeting with identify like what happened and what's going on. It's like, okay, that's a trigger, right? So rather than having a dashboard where you can have this pretty thing on your wall that like shows a graph going up and down, why not just have a trigger in, in place that when those two actions happen, something starts and, you know, a process begins, right? Because that's, it's the difference between like, and this is an oversimplification, but it's a difference between like a CEO sitting there and they have a screen on their wall and they see that revenue just went down. And it's like in a movie, right? They get up from their desk and they run down the hall, you know, to their COO's thing and like revenue just dropped. Like, what are we going to do? And that's like, maybe that, that's firefighting, right? But the fireproofing would be like, you know, CEO is on vacation, gets back from vacation. Hey, by the way, four days ago, revenue dropped 10% and, you know, plan A and B were put into action and we recovered and, you know, just thought you'd like to know. That's awesome. That's awesome. The, I think, I think the, I think that, that I think the everything is, is, is really powerful because, you know, uh, my, my, my coach always talks about those very interesting words, which are like always and never. Those are very fascinating words as well. I'd love your kind of perspective on the always and never because he, he'll say, hey, always do this. And he'll say, no, 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 no. I don't want to pose my belief system on you. And it's really, it's really kind of gotten my sensitivity around using kind of the always and never words as well. And from a language perspective, I think the every is a really great trigger because it's now, uh, it's kind of heightened my awareness to that word as well. But are there other, do, do you have any thoughts around kind of small kind of language triggers that allow us to either be better or send us down kind of a weird weird, weird path? Yeah. So um, another one is when you start to think about like, uh, I guess the best way to sort of categorize would be like action words, right? So if you're having a conversation about something and you need somebody to do something, right? So like, can you, right, for example, or I need you to, or, you know, do this, whatever it might be, right? Those, those whatever language you like to use around those kinds of things. The, at that point, the, the trigger really has to be that it now has to sort of, it, le it has to leave the communication setting and enter a project management setting. Because many people make the mistake of using a communication tool, such as email or Slack or Telegram, whatever it might be, to discuss a project. And I know this is going to sound like a weird nuance, but it's a very important distinction. That's not what a communication tool is for. That might be the place where you brainstorm or where you present an idea. But once it becomes an action item, it's something we need to work on. Now it has to be in a project management system where it can be properly tracked and we can see who owns it and we can see deadlines and related comments to that specific thing. So yes, it, it sounds like a, like a splitting hair. You can still discuss it and talk about it, but it's in the project management setting. People get stuck and they use a communication tool for all those things. So what happens when Slack is a wonderful tool when used correctly. I'm, I'm, I like Slack, but a lot of Slack conversations like, you know, here's the new flyer for the event next week. Oh, uh, I don't like the red. I don't like that font. Okay. Who wants lunch? What's everybody going to order for lunch? You know? And then like, oh, and oh, this client just called and they're upset about this thing. That's what a communication tool ends up looking like for a lot of people. So uh, we need to get in this state where it's like... It, it, you can't hold on to those things in your head. So as soon as it becomes an action item, which is signified by, you know, whatever vocabulary you want to use, it needs to be put into a project management setting. And have you, um, is there a way to culturally communicate to the team that there's a, there's a kind of conceptual or philosophical demarcation that, Hey, 
all this is for this, but once it gets to this point, it's this without us being kind of um, almost Nazi about it. Yeah. So it's funny because is there a way to communicate it? Yeah, communicate it. I mean, because that's the thing. It's like it's usually a lot of these things end up being very implicit and we need to make the implicit explicit. It's really that simple. And it also needs to be intentionality around the tools that we use. So I have something called the less doing communication SOP. And there are multiple tools that every any company really should have for communication. And in that communication sort of mindset, one of those tools is a project management tool because it has to leave communication, go there. But we need a tool for internal communication and uh, but not just internal, but we need one for casual conversation as well as one for procedural communication, which would be like a Slack or something. Boxer might be more casual. But all we have to do is tell people, like, these are the tools we're using, and this is for this, and this one is for this, and this one is for this, and we want to do the best not to cross those lines. Because if you think about, like, uh, take, like, a hallway with a bunch of doors on either side, right? And none of these doors have markings. And we go down the hall, and door number three on the left looks fine. So we open that, and there are three guys with guns. Um, that's the email, the email inbox for most people, right? Like, <laughs> You don't know what you're getting into, right? Uh, and if you adjust, like, the door across the hall is an ice cream truck. But we don't know that because there's no labels because everything is being done in every place. You know, there's, people use email for everything. And email, for example, should never be used as an internal communication tool. You should never be sending email to people that you are working with in the same organization. Uh, if you start to identify different tools for different things, so it's, hey, Slack is for the procedural information. That's where we're going to say things like, you know, Hey, everybody, event is coming up on the, the 15th. Just want to make sure everybody's aware of it. Cool. Casual conversation is going to happen in Boxer. That's where we do our daily stand-ups, and we can be a little bit more structured or less structured about it. In Intercom is what we're going to use for bridging the gap between internal and external. So if somebody sends us customer service email, we need to discuss it internally. We can do it in that tool. We're not sending the email around. Now what happens is you walk down that hall with all the doors, and now there's a sign that says three guys with guns, ice cream truck, super client you know important clients all that kind of stuff so that you know what you're getting into once before you get into it and you can be in the right mindset and shift accordingly and that's that's awesome i, I think one of the earliest things you um you shared I, I think it was at a genius network event and you were like hey if there's one thing that you do just stop the internal emails if you just stop the internal emails and moved internal communication to an internal tool just that alone even it doesn't even matter what else like just that alone will cut your entire team's email traffic and the and there'll be there'll be a significantly better kind of internal operating experience, which we've done. I think uh, it's like you said, the the guns in my inbox have changed completely. And I think it also forces the the group uh, kind of collaboration around it, saying, "Hey, we got this. What should we do?" As opposed to a reply all for everybody, and then whoever wants to chime in chimes in. I think that it actually increased camaraderie, which I had never thought uh, would generally be possible, which I thought was pretty cool. Well, so I've asked this question to literally thousands of people around the world. I always like to say, like, what's your biggest productivity challenge? And the number one thing that comes up across four continents is email. Uh, and the email problem is not an email problem. It's a decision-making problem. There's just too many opportunities to make decisions. There's too much stuff happening in one place. And most importantly, here's the thing, is that email is a transactional communication tool, if you really think about it. It's a very ping-pongy type of tool, you know just like you and I had, right? Do, do, can you be on the podcast? Yes. What time? This time works. Great. Here's the, you know, it's very back and forth. Internal communication tends to be, and should be, especially if you want camaraderie, more conversational. So when you try to use a transactional tool 
for conversation, you get the 20 BCCs and forwards and email threads and like the email bankruptcy that everybody has. Right. right. So that's, it doesn't work for that. Yeah. Is there, um, I know you, if you're going into an organization, um, is there, is there like a, like you said in your SOP, is there like a few tools that you say, Hey, um, you got to at least, uh, regardless of what the brand of the tool is, if there are three or four tools that everyone should have, um, and from a high level kind of stack architecture perspective, what, what would be those core kind of tools that most people should have? And they're probably, they're probably, like you said, they're probably using email for project management because, and that should get spun out. Like how, how, what is a stack that you generally kind of recommend? Yeah, so I do try to be sort of tool agnostic, and fortunately, like my system applies pretty broadly. But it, so I named several of them just now. So we need to so four communication tools at the minimum, right? Or part of the communication uh, mindset. So a casual tool, which again I recommend Voxer. Procedural Slack is great for that. The one that bridges the gap between internal and external. So Intercom, Front, Drift, uh, well, not so much Drift, Front or Intercom. Those are both great for that. And then a place where things get done. So I love Trello. People get very, very, you know, ingrained in the system that they like to use. I'm okay with pretty much any any project management system as long as it has a Kanban feature, right? Where you can do the lists and phases. Yeah. Um, which, uh, so, and as long as it has a Zapier integration, those two things, I'm good. Uh, they want to have a place to store SOPs and document processes. So that would be Process Street for me, but. Trainuals, good. Uh, Sweet process, good. I just, I really like Process Street. And then Zapier is the sort of glue that ties all these things together for automation. So those, those um, categorically, those six tools, and specifically the ones I mentioned. Yeah, um, I'd love to bring this home with one. I, th- I don't know when you recorded this podcast. It was a long time ago, or, or maybe you've done multiple versions of these, which totally was probably of all the things that you've done. And this is cool, kind of. Uh, a feedback from folks around you, right? Which shifted my mindset completely was uh, the usage of forms. Like it literally, because I was like, okay, I see where stuff is breaking. And and I'll give you a, a funny story, Ari. My team was like, well, we can't use the form. I was like, why not? Well, like this form doesn't do that. I was like, great, get another form engine. So on our team, we call it this. Sometimes you need three hammers. Like, I don't care. You want to buy three form pieces of software that works for you? I don't care. As, but the it's not the tool there needs to be a form in this spot and i think the big shift for me was uh realizing that a lot of people would just say well i see a forms role in here but google forms doesn't do it therefore i can't do it and so as soon as i gave the team the benefit of saying go so right now we have job form type form and google forms and i'm like fine whatever but it that changed if, if, if you took away the forms on our team, like all stuff will break. Um, so I'd love for you to maybe, maybe talk to you, talk about kind of like how you thought about that, when it broke and how that, that, that philosophy, if, they, if people don't get anything else, if they just got that, I think it'll, it'll dramatically improve how they live their life. Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating one that comes up a lot. And I'm glad that you picked up on that actually for you. And that was valuable. Yeah. So uh, the, the short answer is that forms will, typically fix the problems that are caused by humans in your processes. Uh, so there's there's two sort of concepts here. So the first one uh, is an old Japanese manufacturing, like lean manufacturing concept, which is called a poka yoke. And poka yoke originally stood for like 
foolproofing, but then they found fool to be uh, offensive, so it became error-proofing. And so it's interesting because a polka yoke, on the face of it, is actually an inefficiency that in the long term makes a process much more effective. So it, it will slow things down. It's a roadblock. It's a stoppage uh, in order to ensure generally into sort of like quality. So the background of that sort of thing is important is it was, I believe it was Toyota, might've been Mitsubishi, but there was a, uh, I think it was spark plug that was being produced by one person. So this one person was getting the parts on the conveyor belt, putting it together, spark plug, and then spitting it out the other end. And there was like a significant dud rate, right? So there was like a lot of problems with this. And the manager at the time who is famous, it is Toyota actually, he's famous for creating all these different systems. identified the solution as breaking up the job that was previously done by one person into a job done by two, which costs more money, right? And involves more liability in some ways. But the first person had to do two steps or something like that. And the second person had to do the rest. And the second person could not do their job if the first person hadn't done them correctly. But not only that, because the first person was only doing two steps now, they weren't making the mistakes. So this was known as a polka yoke. So that's where a form comes in. So basically the way that this came out, practically speaking for me, you know I'm in New York. um, (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. Is I, my first major automation was my podcast process. So I was doing, when I started my launch, my podcast, 10 years ago now, 11 years ago. uh, And I'm actually ending the podcast, by the way, in a a few episodes at 500 episodes. It was taking me about 15 hours to do an episode because I was doing the audio editing and the graphic design and the transcript. I was doing it all myself uh, because, you know, why not? But the problem with that, of course, was that I was only putting an episode out once every six weeks or so because I, I just couldn't make the time. And I built a series of automations which involved people, which is totally fine. And it would take people from Fiverr and do the audio engineering and do the transcription and do the gra- and, and it was specifically designed to be done by different people every time because it was experimental and I wanted to make sure that it could be done that way because that's ultimately you know, a bulletproof process at that point. And there was consistently a breakage at one particular spot and I couldn't figure it out. And so what was happening was when the audio engineer finished, so there was an automated email basically that went to the audio engineer and basically said like, add, take this file and connect it with this file, put this transition in between, like add the intro and add the outro and like that, then you're done. And when you're done, name the file this. And the this was automatically populated. And this was like name, first name, last name uh, of the interviewee, you know, and then like date or something. Nine out of 10 times, it was wrong. I would get untitled.m4a, you know, and <laughs> first name, last name, date.mp3, you know, and like um, all sorts of random stuff, right? And it just was like consistently a problem. No matter how, and, and every time I'd be like, hey, can you, you know, like, can I make this clearer? Like trying to put it in capsule, capital letters, like everything I could possibly do, could not get it right. And then somehow, somehow, someday I came up with a form as the idea. And I added a form in, which again, sort of slows things down, but the form, all it, it doesn't say this anymore. Now it says, when you finish the episode editing, click this link and go to the form. And the form says, first name, last name, upload file. And they, it was a required field, so they had to enter it. So they put the first name and last name, and they'd upload the file. Zapier would then automatically name the file appropriately and even put it into the correct Dropbox folder, which would then trigger other things. No more errors, right? Because you're basically forcing people through a gate that they can only fit through in one way. 
And so that has become a bastion of like so many of the processes that I've done at this point where uh, human error will occur, but if you create a form and you create a sieve, right, or a polarizer as well, there's no way to move on without doing it correctly. Yeah, this, it's so amazing because I, I at some point I should take a screenshot of all the forms we have just to, for your just to look at. And I'll give you like one or two that, I, that this team came up with all of this, not me. And um, this would be a good time to kind of wrap up with this. But uh, the team was like, hey, Sharon, you have, you know, uh, the social media team was like, you have all these quotes. They're sitting in some random Evernote folder. So they just built a form for like quotes and they would all go in the back end on a spreadsheet. And now... Whenever I saw a quote on an email, I would everybody knew where to put it in and the social media team knew where to pull it out from. And then the team once said, and we were building a product, and the team was like, I said, Hey, can you put, you know, all the social proof around it? And the team was like, Well, where do we find all the social proof? I was like, Well, it's in a Evernote folder. They're like, Well, we should create a form where you have all your testimonials. So anytime someone would respond to an email, I would just hit forward to the team and they would just put it in the testimonial folder. So now anytime we were building a product, they just had this entire bank of testimonials. And I, this started, it's now it's got to the point that the if then made a lot of sense now, cause it was not like, oh, I got a testimony, where do I save this anymore? It made it super clean. And it also made it clean for the rest of the team on the other end to like utilize this stuff without like me being involved, which is so cool. Um, and and have, never thought that was possible. Have you, have you seen video ask from Typeform? No. So Typeform introduced a pro- I'll just start this real Typeform introduced a product a few months, uh, actually like a year ago now, called Video Ask. And so it's, it's still a form, but it's really cool. Basically, you can record a video of yourself and basically like, yeah, you know, hey, it's, it's, it's Ari, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then the next page is they respond with video or audio and it's mobile friendly and they just hit the button right there. There's no software or anything. And they respond. So it's a form. So you can use this for interviewing back and forth. Um, I'm using it for testimonials, right? So rather than saying to somebody like, hey, record a video on your phone and send it to me when you get a chance. No, I send them this form and it's like, hey, it's me. It's Ari. Like, I'd love to for testimonial, blah, blah, blah. Next page, just click the button and do it. They can do it from their phone, click it. And then I get it immediately. They don't have to send it to me. They don't have to get set up at their webcam. They don't have to figure out how to do it. Done, right? You're moving that blockage point. Yeah, it's so, it's so, it's so good. I, what, I think what it did was it made... It empowered the team to think about them solving their stuff without us being involved. And I thought that was, that was awesome. Um, Ari, one thing you've, you've kind of talked about today was that you're shown as like, Hey, not only there's this, this, this mindset around it, there's this mechanics around it. There's the integration around it. There's a human component around it. Um, you spent a lot of time doing this stuff. Where can, where can people kind of access kind of your body of work? Where would you like to, get people to go to so they can get, get more of you. Yeah. Thank you uh, for the opportunity. So everything is at lessdoing.com, the books, the programs, the blog, all that kind of stuff. But uh, people should go to voxwithari.com and it's a, it's a quick video from me and it explains how Voxer works and then just reach out on Voxer and tell me what your questions are, what you think about what you heard. And uh, it will be me. It's my voice, not a virtual assistant, not an automation. It is actually me. and We can chat. Uh, it's always, hey, and yeah, definitely say, hey, you heard, uh, say, hey, I heard you on Sharon's podcast. And uh, that way, Ari has some context as to <laughs> how you connected as well. And that that helps. Ari, loved your books, getting a lot of them to my mastermind groups as well. And I love your work, man. You 
you live you live what you share every day and uh, that's that that congruence with that is, is awesome so thank you for being on thank you for sharing and uh appreciate you very much thank you so much Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com dot com.